1: And includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as you can see, we're in a different location. We are (laughs) in New York. We're at the Hudson Yards. Incredible, with us is the one and only Philip Hamilton. And you all know him. He's been on the program many times. Do you know this is the first time in years, in like three years, that I have literally been in a studio with another human being?
2: Anna, I'm so proud to be that first within the three years, and it is so good to finally be with you in the flesh.
1: I know, and to meet you, and to meet you, right? Um, You got to come
2: to the East Coast more often.
1: I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on it. So we're going to focus on one case this week, and this is the murders in South Carolina, the Murdoch murders. And a lot's happened in the last week, and we're talking about this really prominent South Carolina family where the mom and the son were murdered on their 1,700-acre hunting estate, which was also where they lived. Right. And... At first, no one was even considering the husband-father, Alec Murdoch, as the possible suspect because there's no way that he would have done this. Plus, from the very beginning, from the very first 911 call, Alec Murdoch, who, by the way, is a respected attorney, Mm -hmm. he is also a part-time volunteer solicitor prosecutor. His (laughs) family has been in the job of prosecutor solicitor for, for four generations. Right a century this family has controlled justice who gets it and who goes to prison Mm. so it's shocking to think that you would have the heir of this family be charged with murder and then ultimately convicted
2: huge case. I mean, when we first started hearing more about that family, I mean, did it not give you the rings of almost being like the Kennedys of Southern South Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. Fair to speak? Like just for like that locale, the name just uh, resounds, right? So uh, as we, you know, nationally learned more about it and, you know, got... You know, kind of captured into all of just the hysteria around it, the drama around it. Um, you know, it's a case that I look forward to talking with you about today. I mean, it's so much to unpack.
1: So much, and and we started covering this case, you know, a year and a half ago. The the when Maggie Murdoch and her son Paul were found dead, the initial the initial reports were that they were possibly targeted as a as either retribution or or revenge. Because their son, Paul, one of the murdered, one of the victims here, had been in a boating accident in which he was allegedly driving the boat while intoxicated. And the the boat crashed and it killed a young woman named Mallory Beach. And so that was where the whole investigation went. But, Philip, the investigation went in that direction because Alec Murdoch pointed it in that direction. And... My suspicion is, though no one is fully saying it, is that because he was so respected, I think the police just followed his lead.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, when you kind of look into who this family was, you talk about just the generations of uh, solicitors that just make up the Murdoch name, right? Right everyone within law enforcement in Southern South Carolina, within that region with which they were the solicitors, knows them, right? So to that end, you already have a built-in credibility as opposed to if this is just a random 911 call, people are coming to the home finding dead bodies, of course, Initial questioning is always going to start with those who either have access to the house, family members, because statistically, when we think about these kinds of crimes, typically you're killed by people who you know, right? Mm -hmm. That's just the way that this works. But I think because he already had that built-in credibility just from his name, the brand around who they were within the field of law, justice, he was able, I think, at the inception to move the investigation into other routes and Although it's unfortunate that at that time, you could almost say that there was a delay in really getting into the nuts and bolts of the investigation, particularly as concerns him. At the end of the day, did it ultimately matter much? Because we know now he's going to be spending the rest of his life in prison. So
1: I kind of think it does matter. And here's why I think so, because a lot of evidence is missing Mm. and So, you know, we saw it in the body cam if if you all were watching the trial. So he's wearing Alec Murdoch. He's the one who claims to have found the bodies. He's the one who calls 911. He's the one who's there waiting as the first responders are coming in. He's wearing a T-shirt and shorts. But earlier in the day, like late in the day, he was videotaped with his son on the property, and he was wearing a completely different outfit, which is also completely different from what he left in the morning with to go to work. Right. So the T-shirt that he was wearing, the authorities have already said that um, it did not have any blood on it. They they tore that thing apart. So he didn't have blood on him. He didn't have brain matter. And I don't mean to be graphic about it. No, but, but this is important. But these two, his wife and his son, the final fatal shots, they were both shot in the head. So and the positioning and we can get into all of that, that there was a lot of testimony that said it'd be hard not to have some of that on him when responders got to the scene of the crime this is what he was wearing and they took that clothing in but you know what they've never found what he was wearing right before that right so where are those clothes i think because the investigation was pointed in a different direction away from him that they didn't really diligently go after things like that until months later and we've never found those clothes both murder weapons. Maggie and Paul were shot with two different Different guns, two two Mm -hmm. completely different weapons, presumed to have come from the family gun room, but they were never found. So I feel that had the authorities looked at him more seriously from the very beginning... That maybe there would have been even stronger evidence against him because I think that the amazing thing about last week was so he gets convicted, the jury convicts him of both murders in less than three hours. Right, right, and they're like, and and if you've read or heard any of the jurors' um, comments on the trial, they all say the same thing. Oh, the minute that man got on the stand, we knew he was <laughs> lying, and he was lying the whole time. So uh, uh, that though, that was stunning, putting him on the stand. Would you have put Alec Murdoch on the stand?
2: On these facts, I would have never put him on the stand in terms of the advice that I would have given him. Right. I would have been strongly opposed to him testifying for a lot of the reasons that we've heard the jurors actually talk about. Right. The fact that the minute that he took the stand and they heard his voice and then they're comparing that to the voice that they heard in the kennel video At that point, that knocked out the reasonable doubt. The jury may have always, when we think about criminal law, when we think about civil law, right, Mm -hmm. whenever you're suing someone for liability, you and I have talked about these cases in the past, the burden is beyond a preponderance of the evidence, right? So essentially, you're 51% sure that this person committed said violation, committed said act, right? You can ultimately find them liable. When it's a criminal matter, and we're talking about beyond a reasonable doubt, The burden is so much higher that the jury could have always been sitting there presuming that he committed this crime, right? However, did they have reasonable doubt that maybe there's a slight chance that he didn't? It sounds as though that door was shut the minute he walked onto the stand. So if you ask me would I ever put him on the stand in a criminal case, the answer would be no. Now, did he ultimately, and I would presume as much that he did, convince his lawyers that he had to take the stand – That's a totally different story because that's his constitutional right. And at a certain point, I can't fight him, even though it's a terrible idea for him to take the stand. He did a total disservice to himself and to his case and to the fight that his lawyers were putting up and made it easier for the state to ultimately overcome a lot of the issues that you're saying presented at the beginning in the sense of them not being able to gather that evidence Mm -hmm. and them having been thrown off. It's almost kind of like karma came back to him. Right? right. Like everything that he tried to do to take the spotlight off of himself. The minute he goes onto the stand, it erases everything that he had did conspiratorially to try to get them away from him. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just
1: totally. And and yes. And I think the fact that he is an attorney, I think the fact that he was a volunteer prosecutor. Right. I think the fact that when you look at his whole life and all the financial schemes and the fraud and all that he's charged with I think that this is a man who thinks he can talk himself out of everything. And, and the thing is he talks so fast and in circles it was I was exhausted. I was exhausted watching him, listening to him. I had a headache. I had a headache. And then it's that fake crying, that high-pitched mm. whining. I mean it was crying and lying the whole time from the minute mm. that man made the first 911 call until he took the stand, lying, crying. Lying and crying a- and.
2: And playing the victim in many respects, right? Yeah. Like the way that that emotionally came off, that's very off putting because, you know, you and I have discussed this in the past. Trial is theater, okay? There are, you know, players, there's an audience that's the jury, right? The people that are within the well. The actors are oftentimes the, you know, prosecution and, you know, the defense. And to the extent that you're telling a story, right? There's going to be protagonists, there's going to be antagonist. The way that he took the stand, just he comes across as just like a narcissistic villain, right? And that's never going to, even if you are in a position where maybe on paper what you're saying could ultimately provide the jury with reasonable doubt, if they don't like you, which when we've listened to a lot of the interviews, I had the opportunity to watch the uh, jurors on the Today Show, right, like mm-hmm. immediately after the verdict. And like really what you're getting from a lot of them, even if not explicitly said, we didn't like them. You know, he came across thinking that he was, like, super convincing, and that's ultimately probably why he took the stand. And to the extent that they don't like him, why are you then going to take the extra step for him in a case that the charges are so vile, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you might do that in a situation where you actually like someone, you feel as though, you know what, I really can't say one way or the other, like, what happened. But when you don't like someone and you're on the fence, it's always going to push you over. And I don't think that Murnau did a good job of getting the jury to like him. No one likes him.
1: No, he is not likable. And it was an interesting approach because there were two bombshells. There was the bombshell that he was taking the stand, was, right. and, we were, and that was changing by the minute, by the day, because even that morning, everyone was waiting, and it was not firm whether he would take the stand. So I believe that meant the attorneys were trying to convince him <laughs> otherwise, and it didn't work. And then the other bombshell was, you know, it was uh, many, many months later that the police found a video on Paul's phone Mm -hmm. that he took of a dog that was being kenneled on their property. And he was taking this video. He was trying to FaceTime his friend, and it wasn't working. And so then he took a video of the dog and the dog's tail because apparently the owner was concerned about something with the tail. And in that video, you can hear Alec Murdoch clearly shouting. You can't see him, but you can hear him talking in the background. And so... Up until the point that he took the stand, they the prosecution had to have everybody c- try to verify, does that sound like right. Alec Murdoch? And everyone's, yes, it does. If I'd been him, I would have denied it. I would have said, it's not me. Prove it otherwise. Now, of course, I know that'd be a stretch. Right. But no, he gets on the stand and he says, yes, that's me in the video, which places him at the scene of the crime, the kennels, yep. at the time of the murders. I mean, it's literally we're talking a minute or two difference here.
2: When you have said in the past that you weren't there, that you were with your mother, that at the time this happened, you couldn't know what had happened because you weren't there. When you're making that analysis as a defense attorney to put your client on the stand, which we know in criminal law is a choice that they make. It's the state that has the burden to prove guilt beyond all reasonable doubt. I just don't know why he would put himself in the position of going up there and admitting a lie, because now... You have already punctured your own credibility, and that's a big part of what was the crux of this case, right? Like, or at least he made it as much because now it's like, well, are you telling the truth? Not is, is the state proving their case, but are you telling the truth? You're caught in a lie. That lie actually helps the state prove its burden, and we've now had the opportunity to hear your voice, and we know that was you. So we know you were on the scene within minutes of when they ultimately died. How would you not have been able, to the extent that you weren't the shooter, to know that they weren't being killed? I mean, it's by a kennel. You have all these dogs. You, there are things that, like, the dogs would have been barking. I mean, to be in a position to say that you were in the home now and don't understand how they ended up getting killed, it's just you destroyed your own case trying to save your case. It's
1: Well, it seemed like the, the theory was here, I will admit that I have lied. I will admit that I have stolen from my clients. I will admit that I've stolen from my law firm, you know, up to almost, what, nine, ten million dollars that he's allegedly stolen and has admitted on the stand in this case. So he admi- he's facing ninety nine charges, you know, beyond of
2: this. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Beyond the murders. Right. A- and so the theory was, OK, fine. This is the play. We're going to admit. Yes, I've lied. I lied to the police three times during my interview. I lied, I lied. But on this one time, I'm telling you, I'm not lying. How can you believe him?
2: You remember that old adage? It was something along the lines of one lie ruins a thousand truths. I mean, that's this. So that's why when you're in those situations, having those conversations with your client about, is it a good idea to take the stand? Even if there's not a lie, like a malicious lie, Mm -hmm. even if there's just more of like a trivial inconsistency, Sometimes in the course of making those determinations, a trivial inconsistency will lead your client to not get on the stand and take a story. Because, again, why even put your credibility into the spotlight, right? This wasn't a trivial inconsistency. This this is a big lie, like as we've all noted, as the jury accepted. Mm -hmm. And so I think to voluntarily put yourself in that position to go on in front of the jury and admit that you lied to law enforcement – it then says to them, well, if he'll lie to the people that were investigating the crimes, right, the heinous crimes, the murders of his wife, his son, if he'll lie to them, why wouldn't he lie to us? That's what the question always becomes, right? So it's like, of course you would lie to us if you would lie in that situation, and it just doesn't help you.
1: Philip, do you think that if Alec Murdoch had not taken the stand, everything else being equal, do you think that he would have been convicted?
2: I think that he would have had a better chance to maybe not be convicted within three hours. Maybe it would have actually taken a little bit longer. And I'm, after any trial, one of the things that I always make it a point to do is like literally run out of the courthouse and try to catch the jurors on the way out. Whether it's a success, whether, you know, there's some charges that maybe a client went down on that, you know, I hate that that happened, but I just want to know just from my own practice – what was effective and what wasn't. Right. Because like that's feedback that you can take into the next trial or the next case or, you know, prep, like what have you. It's invaluable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the biggest things for me is like when the jurors did start kind of giving their perspective, I would say just based off of what they're saying, there were jurors that went into the deliberation rooms at the inception who were ready to vote not guilty. It took a lot. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going straight from what was said uh, when the jurors were on the Today Show. I mean, they were just like, look, there were jurors that went in there. They were prepared to vote not guilty. Of course, we had like discussions over those three hours and like they quickly came over to our side. But what if he hadn't testified? You know, do those holdouts, so to mm-hmm. speak, mm-hmm. stand their ground longer? And does this ultimately turn into a mistrial or a hung jury or what have you? I mean, he probably, based on just what I'm hearing from them, blew the opportunity. Do I think that maybe they would have been out as opposed to three hours. Maybe they would have been out for three days or something along those lines if he right. hadn't testified, and then still there would have been a guilty verdict. I think that's probably more likely than him being found not guilty, but he totally cut his chances, it sounds, of being able to walk out of that courthouse simply by taking the stand.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of felt that had he not taken the stand, that maybe, maybe there was a chance at a mistrial. Yeah. Uh, at, at the very best, I think, for him. I don't I don't know if he would have You only been... need one.
2: Right. Right? Like as a defense, you only need one juror to hold out. And then we got another trial. Right. And at that point, that's when you typically start to see maybe the state will offer a plea deal or you know what I mean? Like you have a little bit more leverage now before you go into the next trial. But he didn't even get that. I mean, he's he was convicted.
1: That's it. And the judge showed him no mercy. He is going to prison for the rest of his life. And this judge, you know, this judge was amazing because he said, I know you. I've met you socially, everyone knew him. His attorneys had considered taking it to another venue, but no matter where they went in the state, either Alec or Alec's family was known. Right. So it wasn't gonna matter wherever right. they went in that state. So they decided to keep it on home turf is what their decision was, that maybe they would get some sympathy. And so, you know, the the judge the judge told him how disappointed he was and he said, and I'm sure that your wife and your child visit you every night. You know, mm. and, and you know, for a man who cried his way through all these nine one one calls, cried himself on the stand, at when the verdict was read to him, and when he stood there for sentencing, the man didn't shed a tear. Right, and that's how I knew everything was a lie.
2: The juror said that as well. They watched him like turning it on, turning it off, right, and that it just didn't come across as genuine. So, I mean, look. Everybody emotionally, that that is one thing I think as a defense attorney, I do always push back a little bit when people are like, oh, look at the way that they were crying or look at the way they handled whenever they got that news. They didn't act the way that I would have acted. We all take in bad news differently. We all at times act emotionally differently. So I don't typically put too much weight onto that. However, if you're going through a consistent theme with him, then at sentencing, that would have been the time to cry, yes. right? Because like- thematically, you've cried at all other points like that. So, yes, that was somewhat of a tell well after the fact, where he was just like, look, I guess none of it worked. Here I am. i got to figure this out. i got to start going through these appeals. It's like his head was just already on to, like, the next endeavor. Right. He's
1: done. He's done. It wasn't about his
2: family anymore. It was just the next endeavor.
1: And what was interesting is that the responding officer, the first one, the one who was wearing the body cam, he was asked, did you actually see any tears? Did you see? Because, you know, he has that high pitch, annoying, whiny voice. He does. He does. There were no tears. So I want to play a couple of the 911 tapes because I, I kind of want to go back. You know, we've d- done a little debrief on what happened last week. It was a huge, huge week uh, for justice. Um, but I want to go back to the night of the crime and then the 911 tapes because I want to play a bunch of 911 tapes because honestly, this man is called 911 more than anyone else I know, <laughs> and each time, um, to his, in a way that damages. That damages him yeah. in the worst way. It, it, You know, he puts it all on tape there. So we're talking about the night of the deaths here, the murders, which was June 7th of 2021. 52-year-old Maggie Murdoch and 22-year-old Paul were found dead. Mm-hmm. Alec is the one who calls 911. I, have, I want you, you know, in our previous podcast, we've played these for you. This is before we knew everything. Right. I want you to listen to how high-pitched he is, he's crying, he sounds hysterical, and he's pointing the finger at the possibility of, of his son having been targeted.
0: This is Alex Murdoch at 4147 Moselle Road. I need the police to passed this immediately my wife and child just got badly. I'm going back to my house just to get a gun just in okay. case. I know you're upset, Mr. Murdoch. I don't want, you want, want you to get <laughs> a gun at it.
1: So as as we've said, you know, we don't know how we would respond ourselves. If I found my family members massacred like this, I would be hysterical, too. I would be hysterical, too. Okay, and if I really believed that someone was out to get my son, I probably would tell the authorities early on if that were true. Right. But now we know that none of that is true. Okay. And we've gone through the fact that the murder weapons were never found. No blood on Alec, but we never found the clothes that he was wearing before. All right. So now let's get to the timeline, because this I think is the most interesting part. So he says he left the house at nine PM. And he went to visit his mom. His dad really was sick. He was in the hospital and then he died. So he really did go there. The caretaker saw him. All of that's been documented. Mm -hmm. All of that is true. Mm -hmm. But it appears that he killed Maggie and Paul, then went to visit his mother.
2: Quickly ran over there for the purposes of knowing that he was going to need the alibi. Right. And
1: then came back. Like, who can even do that? Who can even do that? Who can even kill Kill two people and then go see your mother. Even you know, even if she has dementia, she's your mother. You would feel shame sitting in front of her.
2: I mean, there's a couple of words you and I haven't used, uh, you know, this particular, uh, you know, podcast that we've used in the past. I mean, sociopath, narcissist, right? Like, these are the types of attributes that I think would be within someone that could do something like that. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, you know, we're both parents, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about finding, God forbid, like finding um, – you know, your children kill. I, I don't even like saying it. I don't like thinking about it. Right. But just let's talk about that. I mean, where we would be there. But like, then imagine like you actually did it. Like you took the life of the life that you helped bring in to this world and then just make a quick run over to moms for an alibi. Not even. The, <laughs> it's like, you know, the mom's like, oh, it's good to see you. And it's just like it, in the background, it's like, I'm only here just because I kind of need an alibi. I'm not really here to see you. Right. I'm just trying to get the police off my chair. It's just it's bad.
1: Oh, it's bad. And it's so, so sick. And so the 9 p.m. timeline is very important because they believe that the murders happened, you know, a little after 844, because at 844 is when the video was made at the kennels where you can hear him. And he denied the whole time, right, denied the whole time that he was there. Now, we just heard that 911 call. Now, now, keep in mind, if we're back in, in that time, and we put ourselves back there. These mm-hmm. murders have happened. Two prominent people have been murdered. Mm-hmm. The police have said, we don't believe that the public is at risk. Well, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> they don't have a suspect because they're not zeroing in on Alec, mm-hmm. but which means they're buying the whole this could have been retribution and Paul was targeted. They're buying that whole thing, and Alec is just going on about his business. And then Labor Day weekend, because we did another podcast on this all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. The man is completely undone. He calls 911 again, and this time he says he's changing a tire on the side of the road, and someone tried to kill him, shot him in the head. Okay, if you were shot in the head, this is when I think I would be screaming, Philip, okay? Shot in the head. Listen to this 911 call. Here's Alec again. Listen to how calm the man sounds.
0: Okay, 911,
1: where's your emergency? I
0: stopped. I got a flat tire. Mm-hmm. And I stopped, and somebody stopped to help me. And when I turned my back, they tried to shoot me. Oh, okay. Were you shot? Yes. But, okay. I mean, I'm okay. You shot where? Where were you shot at? Huh? Did they actually shoot you or they tried to shoot you? They shot me. But
1: uh, Okay. Wait, you need EMS? Uh, Well, I
0: mean, yes, I... I
1: can't drive that incident of him saying that he had been shot and he was airlifted to a hospital and police immediately said it was a you know, it was a wound that they didn't think was life threatening. And now you're wondering, like, my God, is there a militia out there trying to kill every Murdoch that there is?
2: I mean, I don't even look when all of this was coming out, like, you know, you I, I can typically find my words. And I like I, I don't know. And I don't say that often, but just, like, I I don't know the thought processes. I don't understand why ultimately he thinks that this is convincing. But you know what? Because of the fact that he was able to kind of walk away from that unscathed almost, in every respect. Almost. right? right almost. Right, right. I think that also gives, like, a lot of false confidence in him to think that he just has the ability to just get over. Oh, right. And he doesn't.
1: Right. And this time, this is when it becomes too suspicious. It's either someone's out to get the Murdochs or what the hell is going on? And it became a what the hell is going on right. watershed moment right. because then he goes – then then he says, oh, oh, I've decided to, you know, leave my law firm. No, they fired you. <laughs> they fired you because they caught you allegedly stealing money. Mm. So he's now under investigation for stealing money. He has been fired. Um Two relatives are dead, his wife and his son. And now he claims someone tried to shoot him on the side of the road. Oh, wait. And now I have an opioid addiction. I'm going into rehab. So all that, like, drops like a bomb on that Labor Day weekend. Everyone – now there's even more attention. Now everyone's like, oh, what is going on here? And so then what happens? Then we learn in the trial – so I'm going to piece this back in in real time – Then we learn that he and his attorneys call the investigators and admit, you know what, here's what really happened. I hired my cousin, and I said to my cousin... (laughs) Curtis Eddie Smith, listen, cuz, could you just shoot me in the head so dear Buster, my only child now, can receive $10 million in life insurance? So, this is what he tells investigators, and investigators are like, what? So, they arrest Curtis Eddie Smith and they charge him with attempted murder and also, you know, uh, and um, insurance fraud, because the whole plan was for Buster to get money, and he couldn't kill himself. So, th- so the cousin gets arrested, but the cousin tells authority, tells the authorities, "No, no, no! I didn't try to kill him. I tried to take the gun away from him. How could I kill him?" <laughs> and that truly changed the course of this investigation. Truly, truly. I, you know, the the, the one thing I wanted to ask you about Philip is motive. So. Motive has never been truly clear to me, at, at least in my logical brain. I don't understand how killing your wife and son makes your other financial problems better or go away. And that, I think, has been the weakest part of this case. Why did he kill Maggie and Paul?
2: Here we go we've already kind of talked through a lot of the underlying thread that he thinks that he has the ability to talk himself out of things. Do we accept that premise? Yeah,
1: absolutely.
2: Okay, so if we accept that premise, here's the issue that he was having. And, you know, as an attorney uh, and attorneys across the nation that may be listening to this podcast, or if you don't know, I'm going to let you know, the biggest thing that we are all taught from the minute that we graduate law school and get admitted to the bar is do not play around with clients' money. Okay, you can go out here. I'm not saying that I do this or anyone I know, but like I'm just letting you know from like the way that you read a lot of these ethics opinions. You have attorneys that, you know, commit DWIs. They can be convicted for DWIs. You know, maybe there's sometimes issues with like spousal abuse. There's other kinds of like either, you know, personality types of issues or just like crimes that are committed or just like unethical conduct. Right. Mm -hmm. And what happens with those attorneys is maybe they get a quick censure and then they're back to practicing law. You start messing with people's money, with Mm -hmm. clients' money, Mm -hmm. you're disbarred. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So there was a bigger point here, not just that he was losing his job. He was going to lose his license, right? He was going to lose his ability to in any way practice law right and like make a living now granted i get that they have like a lot of money potentially that's come from before but i also it's my understanding i think there were some financial issues i think they that existed bro- as well I right think
1: they were broke by this point
2: right so his license was going to be the only way to kind of continue to be able to generate income and i think that the issue was with that boating accident whenever they started to look into his financials what was going to happen was it was going to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he had been taking that money maliciously Right. Mm. That there was no accident, that there was no, oh, I I, I didn't mean to, for it to go into that account. Yeah, right. I, Whatever he was going, I can't even think of what he would narcissistically say to get himself out of that situation. But I think that he believed that if my son is still alive. Right. And if like this is still an issue and like my financials are being subpoenaed, he's got to go because that's the only way that I'm going to be able to talk myself out of this issue. I've gotten myself into at work with my license. That's what I think. Right. Just based off of like the facts that have been presented. Now, if there are things that we don't know, then, of course, I'm going to hedge. And right. if those facts come out, then later I could change this opinion. But based on what I knew, I think he was just trying to save his own career and his own ability to make money. And I think that his sons being alive mm-hmm. and that boating case that was, you know, really starting to get into the throes of litigation was going to complicate that. That's what I think.
1: So by killing Paul, the criminal case goes away. And they did. They dropped the criminal case because it was against Paul. So with Paul dead, the criminal case goes away. And later that week, he was supposed to submit his financial statements, which we're pretty sure was going to show that there was barely any money there. Correct. So he avoided producing that financial statement on the civil lawsuit, Mallory Beach's family suing the Murdoch family. Correct. But I don't think that it would have gone away. I mean, logically, it's like it stalled and got rid of some problems, but not all problems. Like, where in the world was he going to get the other money to pay back the nine to 10 million that he stole from the attorneys, that he stole from all of the clients, clients who had been injured, died from their injuries? it's astonishing how much money he stole. What did he do with all
2: this money? He was done in terms of being an attorney. And I think all of these other issues that we're looking at down the line, like basically you were in a box, Alec, like in terms of where you were headed with your career, like you were done, like you were captured. But basically what he was doing was running around that box and like baby stepping the issues that were to come, right? So it's like the priority that I have right now is if my son's gone, that stalls, right? I get some more time, I can figure things out as we move forward, right? Like these other issues that we'll present, I'll deal with that then, right? But I think that he just took a very irrational, cruel first step as concerns his child. I think clearly, ultimately, mom heard, right? Mm -hmm. And then she had to go, too, as far as he was concerned. And just at the end of the day, like his, his, his twisted mind aside, let's just be clear, it's just really sad
1: at the end of the day.
2: It's really sad.
1: It's so sad, and how he did it all so quickly is what... Like, I'm wondering, how premeditated was it, or is it possible that something happened that night where he just, like, that's it, and he he lost it? But to recover as quickly as he did, you know, and to hold this off for a year, because right. he was not indicted for a year later on the murders. But what ends up happening after that craziness with the, you know, attempted hit on him that wasn't, so... He's in rehab, he comes out of rehab, and then the first charge that, that he goes up that, that is dropped against him has to do with the death of his former housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. She died on the Murdoch property, specifically this, this one, property. Moselle. Yeah. And so in, in that case, it was presented as Gloria tripped and fell somehow on the steps outside the house, taken to the hospital, dies later, a few weeks later. And at the funeral, Alec Murdoch says to her two sons, you know what, ultimately this is kind of my fault because it was, you know, under my house insurance. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you get a good attorney, right? And they're going to sue. You're going to sue and file a claim against my insurance company, and then you're going to be taken care of. And so there was a settlement, $4.3 million. But those two boys, Gloria's boys, didn't know that the case had ever settled because Alex was allegedly in cahoots with someone else, and that money ultimately went to Alec. Can you believe this? They had no idea. They had no idea. So that's the first case that he's charged on was stealing $4.3 million from Gloria Satterfield's family. Now, there's another 911 call with Gloria, okay? I want to play this again. I think it's really important. Now, this call is made by Maggie, and when we play this call, you can kind of hear like, you know, well, she just fell. She just fell. And you you can hear her son telling the 911 operator to stop asking questions and can you just send help, right? which once again shows how privileged this family is. Let's play that 911 call.
0: 911, where's your emergency? 4147 Moselle Road. Okay, what's going on out there? I'm sorry? What's going on out there? Uh, my housekeeper has fallen and her head is bleeding. I cannot get her up. Okay, and you said she's fallen, she's bleeding from the head? Yes. Okay. How old is she? I'm not sure, like 58 maybe. Do you know if she fell from standing or not? No, no. where she fall from? From the she's still going up the steps, up the brick steps. Okay, so is she outside or inside? Outside. Okay. How many steps is there? Uh, eight. Is she just not like responding appropriately, but she is awake? <laughs> Man, she's not no, she's not responding. Okay, I just I have already got them on the way, and me asking questions, does not slow them down, ma'am. Hello? Yeah. Can, can you ask the patient what kind of pain she's having? Ma'am, she can't talk. Okay. Do you know... She's cracked her head and there's blood on the concrete and she's bleeding out of her left ear. Okay. She's bleeding out of her ear? And out of her head. She's cracked her skull. Okay. All right. The other lady said that she had tried to stand up and fell down again? No. She. I was holding her up. And okay. She told me to turn her loose and she was trying to use her arm, but then she fell back over. Okay. Do you guys know who she is? Yes, she works for us. Okay. Do you know if she's ever had a stroke or anything before? Man, can you stop asking her questions? I already questions have, have them on the way. way. I already have them on the way. Me asking questions does not slow them down in
1: any way. So, that gives us so much context. I think, of this family and all of the things that have either happened on this property, around that property, or people that they know, and and that's when this case started. To, when he unraveled, it all unraveled.
2: Right. And I mean, remember earlier, just in terms of when I say that the name resounded as though they were the Kennedys of, you know, Southern South Carolina. In another comparable respect, right, just kind of with all of these things that are happening within the Murdoch family, there's kind of like another analogy there, right? Just in the sense of, you know, why are all of these terrible things constantly and consistently happening as concerns the Murdochs as the nucleus to... Just all of these horrible, what you would think uh, at a certain point, potentially coincidental. Like I mean, you know what I mean? Like, these are just the conversations that nationally we're all having.
1: Yeah. It was just so much because it's hard to believe all of this could be going on in one family in right. one area. It just it, – if you had written this movie, no one would have believed it because it doesn't – That's what it sounds
2: like. It sounds like a script. Right. It, it sounds like a script.
1: It's unbelievable, yet it is all fact, which is why we're all, I think, so fascinated by this. You know, and I've always said this. I'm like, can you imagine what it is like to be a 911 operator in this area? It'd be like every time a Murdoch is calling, you know they're saying, oh, dear Lord, it's another Murdoch. Another what has happened this yeah. time? Right. Never has has so much. And it's not
2: going to be a simple trespass. No. I mean, it's going to be something like seriously complicated, right? Right.
1: And these are the initial recordings of every single incident or crime, all links back to a 911 call when you get the initial information. And it's interesting what a trail they have left in these calls and how much information and how much we've learned about them and their personalities. Like when Alec called 911 because of Maggie and Paul and the operator innocently said to him, is it a house or is it a trailer? Oh, he was in. Indignant.
2: How dare you. How
1: dare you. It is <laughs> a house. You? How? And that just, that just said everything. That just said everything about who they are. Because at a point like this. And
2: the importance with, like, when we're talking about, like, the motive, right? When we're going back to the motive and just kind of, like, some of the fiscal undertones, that indignant, in many respects, it, it, <laughs> it corroborates, yes. right? Like, the, the motive, right? It's just like. Your money, your image, your, all of that is like tied together. And I think, you know, by the time he's stealing all of these millions of dollars and um, about to get caught for it, it's almost like the money was more important than your own flesh and blood.
1: What do you think happens now with some of these other cases? Like with the Mallory Beach case, the criminal case is over because mm-hmm. the suspect is dead,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: there's still a lawsuit. I don't think this man has any money.
2: Yeah. What we uh, notice judgment proof at this point. Right. I mean, it's just if there's no ability to collect, then in terms of civil litigators, it doesn't a lot of times, at least on contingency. Right. Like as an attorney, when your fees are being paid based upon what you're able to recoup, recoup from a defendant. Yeah. I mean, it does make the civil case a little bit harder. I mean, unless there's just some assets elsewhere that we don't know about that could be found. Well, the
1: uh, assets. Okay, that's really interesting. So one of the things that Alec has said is that he paid his cousin, Cousin Eddie, um, by check. Who who buys drugs? And pays for it with a check. Please help me, okay? What a moron, right? So we know it's not true. It's yet another lie. But he was paying Eddie. Although a... I
2: don't know necessarily with this guy, I don't, I don't know if it's mutually exclusive, to be frank let me with you. Write you just, a check. I yeah, write a check. Yeah. For my, It's in there. It's in there. Here you go, there. sir.
1: Kind, sir. Here you go. Yeah,
2: don't. I wouldn't put this over. I mean, like most, I think, you know, <laughs> rational, you know, just drug a, users, I don't think a necessarily cash would go there. Yeah, but.
1: All right. So he so he writes all these checks to his cousin and they're for huge amounts. He's claiming that his opioid addiction is costing him 50 to 60 thousand a week. That seems unbelievable
2: to me. I mean,
1: that's cr- he should be dead. By you're now, not okay? functioning. You're no. not
2: you're not you're not functioning at that point. I mean, I think I I mean, just something like random. I was, I was reading somewhere. I think like Rick James was spending like seven thousand dollars a week or something along the line. Those lines like on all of the cocaine that he did, all of the cocaine that Rick right. James did. Right. right. So if this guy is paying 50 to 60,000, I would tend to agree with you. He, he's not running around making these coherent 911 calls and doing all the other stuff that he's doing.
1: Yeah. So, I i mean, I don't doubt that he had a pill problem because there were references to the family being concerned about his pill problem. But not at that level. I don't think at that level. So I don't know if there was money laundering going on, which makes me question, is there hidden money and hidden assets elsewhere? I presume the financial crimes people are going to have to figure that out. And do you? what's your opinion on this? Can anyone file any claims against any of his insurance companies now? Because now that he's Kind, he has admitted to insurance fraud that he wanted to be murdered in order for his son to collect on his life insurance policy, I would think every insurance company now is going to think any claim is somehow part of fraud.
2: Or I mean, there's no. no, I mean, they're certainly not just going to be signing off. I mean, there's going to be, you know, a very in-depth a forensic evaluation with respect to any claim that's made as, you know, him as a policyholder, just because, of all of these other areas with which he's orchestrated fraud, both at his job, right, which will be known to the insurance companies. Like, they know who this person is, right, as an insured at this point. So I think that um, it certainly won't be easy. It certainly won't be easy.
1: No. And so there— I want to talk about the other case, not just the Mallory Beach case, but the Stephen Smith case. But one more thing on Mallory Beach, what came out at trial was, and also the Netflix documentary does a great job of telling this story, if you all haven't seen that yet, which which really focuses on the Mallory Beach boat crash and her death and what happened and what everyone experienced. But one of the things that absolutely came out as evidence in court was that when this happened and Alec responded and went to the hospital where – all of the kids were, um, that he put his prosecutor's badge on his hip pocket and it's dangling off his pants. Now, mind you, he's a dad responding, but he's responding with his fancy badge on his pants. And the allegations are that he tried to coerce everyone to change their story, to let him represent them, to not say anything to police. And above all, don't say that my son, Paul, was driving the boat, that it was someone else. When they all say it was him. So he still challenges that. So so that comes out, which means, don't you think that if there were a death involved in a boating accident where there is videotape, where it looks like the person who owns the boat, drives the boat, appears to be intoxicated, that maybe he should have been charged with something more than boating under the influence, which was the steepest of the charges?
2: No, I mean, seriously. I mean, he's just, this is, again, going more towards just his consistent Manipulation. I mean, tying all the way back to what you're discussing at the inception of, you know, the case with his wife and his son, he's using his power position and just like the name brand mm-hmm. within, you know, the law and, you know, the carrying out of the law by virtue of law enforcement in this area in a very malicious fashion. Right. And it's, um, you know, it's just sad. I mean, it's just a flat out abuse of power.
1: So the other case I want to talk about that's connected to this, and I know there's a lot out on this, but it's so important because, you know, all these people are dead. Mallory Beach is dead. She's not coming back. Stephen Smith is dead. Now, Stephen Smith, he had a very mysterious death. This happened in July of 2015. Mm. Stephen was 19 years old, and he's found dead on the side of the road, and he, uh, he apparently knew Alex's son, Buster, they went to school together. They were friends. There could have been more. There are a lot of rumors. We're sticking to what we know as far as the facts. Okay. So Stephen is found on the side of the road. Apparently his car had run out of gas and that he was walking back, I guess, to either get gas or walk home. But here's the thing. It was initially investigated as a hit and run, but he still had his shoes on. There were no road burns on his body, and the initial trauma and the trauma that killed him was head trauma. Mm. How could he have been hit by a car and not flung, carried, pushed, thrown, still have his shoes on, not have road burns? And so it's investigated, and it came out in trial that Buster's name was referred to throughout the police reports as someone who should be talked to. We don't believe he was ever questioned by police. Stephen Smith is dead. They closed the case on him, and then after Maggie and Paul were murdered and all of this came out, they reopened this investigation. And the question is, Stephen Smith's case, his mysterious death, has never been solved, and there has never been justice for him. There's never going to be justice for Mallory because Paul is dead. So what happens in this case? How, you know, do you think it's possible they can piece back together the facts of this case and find out what really happened to this young man?
2: It's not impossible, but we know it's, you know, a steep uphill climb. I mean, you know, when we just think through, again, just like those first, you know, 10 minutes to few hours, right, that Alec had with respect to Maggie and Paul, right, and just how that can change the course of an investigation in terms of that short amount of time. I mean, at this point, we're talking what, close to eight years, mm-hmm. right? Like eight yeah. years that have gone by. It you know, may have been one that would have been difficult to prove even back then, even to the extent that they were able to have the conversation with Buster. But like eight years later at this point with – <sighs> It's tough. It's not it's not impossible. I mean, you do see at times, rarely, albeit, but you do see at times where, you know, some of these like cold case detectives are able to go back and, you know, either get a statement, get an affidavit, or, you know, there's some piece of evidence that now because of what has happened in this trial or what has happened in the course of this investigation ties in. But short of a Hail Mary, I think unfortunately it's pretty tough. And, you know, unfortunately Stephen Smith Is just out there with an unsolved
1: death. death. Yeah. You know, I just – we always talk about this on the podcast. What is justice? What will justice look like? So Alec Murdoch has been convicted of two murders. He's spending the rest of his life in prison. Do we feel like there's been justice? Because we found out about all these other victims – We found out about all the financial fraud, which he has admitted to. What happens to all those people? How do they become whole? I understand that the partners have all put money in to try and make all of the clients clients, who were stolen from whole. So that was the right thing to do. You know, that was definitely the right thing to do. Um, Is that justice? I don't know. He's going to be on trial for all these cases unless because he's already admitted it in the murder trial. He just like pleads no contest i don't know i don't know what he does
2: and i mean also remember you know let's be frank when we when we think through justice when you get to the when you get to the precipice of sentencing right we always go through prior to then when we're even before going to the trial we go through a lot of the pre-trial motions a lot of the pre-trial litigation and you know the judge is making decisions on what evidence is going to come in what evidence is going to come out because everything's you know it's 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 to keep everything fair for the jurors that are going to be listening to this case, to not prejudice them, to make sure that the uh, defendant has their, you know, Sixth Amendment constitutional right to a fair and impartial jury. Right. At sentencing, you know, particularly in these realms, the jury's kind of out of it. It's now the judge. And a lot of all of this stuff that we have been talking about ourselves, that the judge was having to make decisions on in terms of what comes in and what doesn't. Well, now it's kind of relevant. Right. Like now all of these things can be considered. And when we think about the options that were on the judge's plate in terms of what to sentence Alex who or not, he didn't necessarily have to give him life. Right. Like he didn't necessarily have to. The reason why he did, I think, was in conjunction with just the heinousness of this particular offense, mm-hmm. all this other stuff. Like, don't think that it wasn't in the judge's mind like, when he's making that ultimate decision that you just need to spend the rest of your natural life in prison because you have way too much stuff going on. You may have had something to do. Like, a a, a judge will never admit this, okay? But, like, when you have, like, behind-the-scenes kind of conversations with judges when you're at dinners with them, they're human beings just like us. So don't think that maybe Stephen Smith didn't creep into the judge's mind or don't think that maybe Mallory didn't creep into the – you know what I'm saying? Like, all of these things, the whole, you know, thing with his cousin, just all of this stuff, just like, you know what? You're just like a menace to society at this point. <laughs> Go. You just need like, to be in prison right, for the rest right. of your
1: life. Forever. Just you must be taken out. You know, out if here. it
2: was just this as heinous as it is, but if there was like clearly I think we can accept he does have some mental health issues. Can we oh, can yeah. we accept oh, that? Oh yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I but he, he's
1: clean now, right? But he's on the drugs he's clean.
2: He he's got some mental health issues. We we can accept that. Totally if we were to have him evaluated, that would come out. That being said, if it was just that, then maybe he could have argued for some leniency or for a shorter sentence. But when you couple, again, what happened here with all of this other stuff, come on.
1: What a bad, man. You can't be running around
2: society like
1: this. No, bad, bad man. So I don't know what justice looks like for everyone else. Will there ever be justice for Mallory? I don't think so because Paul is dead, right? And what happens with Stephen Smith? I'm holding out hope that maybe there'll be a, now that the investigation has been reopened, Mm -hmm. that maybe there'll be some justice Something
2: to tie in. Like, it's something that they can find now that there's been all of this light put on to the Murdoch family and particularly Alex in a way that there wasn't back then. Yeah, maybe something could open and, you know, God bless Mrs. Smith's family to the extent that that does happen. But, you know, I think, again, from a justice standpoint, don't think that a lot of these things weren't considered Mm. when that decision to give him life was made.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to hear all of your comments on this. And just again, this is such a fresh case because he was sentenced to two life Two consecutive life sentences on March 10th. That was just last week. And we are still talking about this case. I and mean, I think we're going to it, for, for a while. while. Yeah.
2: For a while. For a while. It's going to be one of those trials, like, in the course of our lifetime that just, I mean, you think about, like, OJ, right? I mean, we're at what now? Almost 28 years. I mean, I mean, yep. you, you can still have a three-hour-long conversation about that at any point. I think, you know, this is just going to be one of those ones that we that we talk about. And, like, as you're noting, there's probably going to continue to be developments.
1: Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot we don't know yet. Well, that is our show from beautiful Hudson Yards and CNN's audio studio. Isn't it gorgeous?
2: It's absolutely gorgeous. Thank you, Daniel.
1: We never have anyone here. Thank you so much. So cool. Thanks, Dan. Wow. Philip, it's just so nice to meet you in person. <laughs> in
2: New York finally together. Yeah, it's just good to get you out here. I know that, you know, it's not necessarily as sunny or as warm, but um, Hey,
1: it's home. I grew up in Queens.
2: Okay, so yeah. we know what it is. Yeah, We're just glad I'm back. to have you here.
1: I'm so glad that you came in. It's a pleasure. Tell us where people can follow you on social media and your law firm, all that good stuff.
2: Oh, absolutely. Law firm is Hamilton Clark LLP. Uh, You can find me across social media at ESQ underscore Hamilton.
1: Excellent. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can get this podcast and all our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, more than 5 million subscribers. Also, we have a newsletter. You can get that at truecrimedaily.com. Wow. You know, I can't believe it. I'm signing off from New York. This has been so much fun. Just move out here. Just just do this show out here. Come back home. Let's do the podcast on the road. Let's just take the show on the road.
2: I don't have anything to do, so yeah. Well, uh, oh, week. I do. I'm going to try and get to a game at the Garden.
1: Are you kidding? First day Big East conference. Oh,
2: okay, yeah, today okay, St.
1: John's okay. is playing Butler. Okay, yeah, uh.
2: we, we, we've been trial prepping, so I'm, I'm somewhat. <laughs> uh, I'm somewhat out of what's going on in the world. Um, I know all I care that, about. Yeah.
1: Anyway, um, I'm Anna Garcia. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast, and as we always say, don't do crime.